your Bibles, let's go to Luke 2, Luke chapter 2, one more time, and we're going to finish up our series on magnifying the Lord and this morning, and then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to jump back into the last chapter of Colossians and wrap that up here in the next couple of weeks as well, and um, looking forward to getting back into that series just briefly before we bring it to a close. I always enjoy or anticipate where we're going next in our series, and, and um, it's been our practice for a lot of years now to kind of chart the course for six to eight months at a time, so we kind of know where we're going. And we're going to finish up Colossians, and when we finish up Colossians, we're going to launch a series in the life of David, and walk through the life of David through First Samuel. And uh, man, I'm looking forward to that and seeing uh, what, uh, what the Lord teaches us through that chapters as well. But I, this morning, I, I'm excited to be in this text, and I, I can confess to you that I've never preached through the Song of Mary ever before, and I've never preached through the Song of Simeon before, and I've never walked through these texts before, and so I'm excited to walk through them with you this morning, and hopefully they'll be an encouragement to you if they have been to me in the preparation. If you found your place in Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 22 um, through verse number 26. And, uh, and so in Luke chapter number 2, verse 22 through 26, and uh, we'll read that together. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Let's continue reading if we could. And he came in the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents brought him in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to the reading of the Word of God. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts today. Or may our eyes be open. May we be challenged from the Word of God, may we be instructed, and then, or may we leave here obeying what we've learned. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. So we come to this text, and this is probably not a common text that gets used at Christmas. We kind of get to the Christmas day, and we finish the Christmas story, and we skip over and go on to something else. And we don't really look at what happens really right after this, and this is just days after uh, the Lord is born in Bethlehem, and he is going to travel up to Jerusalem, and they're going to go there 
for this, uh, for the obeying of the law, and this is going to be used for us several times. And so we find a couple of supporting actors in this text, which is Simeon and Anna. And Anna is the Anna is the one that will give thanks to God for what Simeon has said, and then she is going to begin to spread the word around about what's going on as well. And so she's going to be, uh, if we could, the evangelist of Simeon's message and what he proclaims here uh, at the temple. And so we, we see this unfolding. Now remember, the angel has come to Zechariah. The angel has come to Mary. The angel has come to Joseph. The angel has come to the shepherds. The child has been born. And now we are some 40 days in. Um, and we come to this place. Now if you remember in uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, the scripture tells us that of his peace there will be no end. Uh, the angels proclaim in the, uh, in the field to the shepherds that there would be peace on earth, goodwill to men. And we see these calling out of peace, but now Simeon gives us a different message almost. It's almost as if there is a discord between the two messages. Simeon's message is one of saying, hey, he's going to be set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. A sword will pierce through your heart, Mary. And these, these seem to be at contrast to what we've already heard. As a matter of fact, the peace that is prophesied of our Lord, even his own words in Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 39, he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said, I came to bring a sword. I will set at variance uh, mother and father, or rather uh, father and son, and mother and daughter, and brothers and sisters will be set at variance because of the message of Christ. Now, these things seem to be in different tension here, but I, I want to look at this in, in, in light of the text today and say this, that God often is, and God is bringing peace through the sword, not apart from the sword. That there is pain and sorrow in what we're called to walk through, and yet the pain and the sorrow are still a part of his bringing about peace. How many of you understand this morning that you can do something that doesn't hurt you, but it harms you. Kind of like that extra piece of pie we ate this week. It didn't hurt, but it probably harms. Whereas we can do something that hurts us, but it doesn't harm us. And I went to the dentist this week, and it hurt. But ultimately, it didn't harm me. It was for my good. It was for my benefit. And God brings us through pains and through sorrows for his glory and for our good to accomplish his end. And there's a prophecy to Mary that this sorrow has come. Someone told the kind of the joke or the riddle. He said he met a man with a mask and a knife. He cut him with the knife and took all of his money. And you think robber, right? He said, no, I went to the doctor. Uh -huh. Um. It's all about the motive behind what's going on with the person with the knife and the mask, right? It, because there is, a, there is a line of intention here. And the one who is shaping the story has a purpose and a plan for the story, and he's bringing about this good. Now, I want to break our text down, if I could, this morning, and just give us four uh, divisions of this text. Under the law first, a man in Jerusalem, thy salvation, and a sword of sorrow. And that's how we'll break it down this morning. And so 
Let's look, if we could, in verse number 22 through 24, we see under the law. I want you to notice how that on three occasions in this short, uh, these short verses that the law is mentioned. The law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the law of Moses is mentioned over and over again. And they've come now to Jerusalem to do what was required under the law. And we see in the previous text that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was given his name, Jesus and now he's come, and there is a redemption process of redeeming the firstborn child that would have been part of the law's uh, requirements. And this is all pointing to the need of redemption. This is pointing to the need of a sacrifice. And Jesus comes in, and not only is that to be the case, but there's also be a purification that happens. After uh, a child was born, 40 days later, there's to be, uh, to be unclean, ceremonially unclean. And then at the end of 40 days, uh, the mother was to be purified, the child was to be uh, taken in, and the offerings were to be made. And all of this is taking place as Joseph and Mary obediently go down or to Jerusalem, about uh, a five-mile journey as they travel there. The law is mentioned in this text that we've all read about four times. We mentioned the text three in these three verses. It reminds us of the sinfulness of the world that he was born into. It places the Lord necessarily under the law as he came to be under the law, that he would deliver those who were under the law from the consequences of the law. And Galatians chapter 4 sheds light on this. I'm going to turn there very quickly. If you want to join me, you can. But in Galatians chapter number 4, we find... Paul writing to us about this very thing. And he writes to us in verse number 4. He said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now listen to these words. Born of a woman, born under the law. And here's what we see. We see the Lord doing exactly those two things. Born of a woman, born under the law. Why born of a woman? Why born under the law? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. And this is what is being accomplished. This is what's being played out in real time, that he is born of a woman, born under the law to redeem them that are under the law. So ontologically, he is born of a woman under the law, or legally and morally, he is under the law and obedient to the law. And Jesus says, look, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Everything that the law required, Jesus fulfilled. And here even in his child, in his infancy, the law is being fulfilled and he's carrying it out exactly as it's supposed to be. And here under the law, he fulfills all the law required. And yet guilty of nothing, he dies in our place. That those who are under the law are redeemed from the law. And so they're following these practices. And we mentioned there's three different. The circumcision, the purification, the dedication of the firstborn. And notice, if you would, that there's a turtle dove or two young pigeons offered. This is interesting because this was a provisionary thing for those who were poor. Those who had very little were given the provisionary. You're supposed to bring a young ram or a lamb. And that would have been a very expensive uh, offering and a, and a great sacrifice. But if you could not afford to do that, you could bring two young pigeons or two young turtle doves. And you could offer them for this sacrifice. And Mary and Joseph, I believe being a people of very little means, 
bring these paupers sacrifice to offer in their place. I can imagine this young couple now having returned to the routine of what is expected of a young parents. They've gone to Jerusalem now. They're trying to find some normalcy to life. And you remember the days when your child first came home that normalcy was something that was hard to grasp. You didn't know what normal was anymore. And uh, they're redefining what normal is now and they're bringing that child along to Jerusalem. The sacrifices are being made. Joseph is making arrangement, no doubt, with someone to purchase the turtle doves and to bring them down and the offering is made and money is exchanging hands to do all that has to be done. And a priest or a Levite is called out and the sacrifice begins and all of the things that have to happen are taking place. And as this is unfolding we find a man in Jerusalem. Now, I, I use that as the, the title because I want to bring it out here. They traveled the five miles to Jerusalem. Now, again, this is not in the modern day. Mary and Joseph weren't on Instagram posting pictures of this beautiful scene of their new baby being born. There was no spreading of the message other than what the shepherds had spread around Bethlehem. There was no uh, shouting from the rooftops. And I don't get the sense that, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph were putting bumper stickers on the back of their you know, their camel as they went to Jerusalem saying, you know, proud parents of the Messiah. You know, that's not what they were doing. These, this was a normal couple in this Middle Eastern setting going about the next thing that they're supposed to do. And no doubt as they're taking these steps, their thoughts have to be, so what do you have to do to raise a Messiah? I mean, what do you have to do? It, we're just going to go to the next thing. And they go to Jerusalem. And the law is being fulfilled. And so then we see this man from Jerusalem. Look, if you would, in, in the next part of this, uh, our text here this morning, verse number 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have heard this read a bunch of times. And I've always thought that Simeon was a priest. He's not a priest. And I, I don't know how many times I've heard it read, and I just had this assumption, he's at the temple, he must be a priest. He's not a priest, he's a man in Jerusalem. He's just someone who lived there and was looking for and expecting and praying for the arrival of the Lord's consolation for Israel, the Messiah. He was waiting on him. Not a priest, but the Bible does tell us that he is a righteous man. He was devout. The Holy Spirit was on him. And he is waiting. He is waiting. You know, when I, when I read this, it, it kind of dawned on me that these first century Christians were the only group of people that spent their days anticipating his first coming and the end of their days anticipating his second coming. You and I have never had to anticipate his first arrival. We've only been looking forward to his second coming. But Mary anticipated his first arrival and also was praying even so come Lord Jesus and anticipating his second coming and here this man Simeon is waiting on the consolation of Israel he's not the only one in scripture that is waiting on this as a matter of fact Joseph of Arimathea is said to be one that waited for the consolation of Israel it was actually a common prayer among some sects and they would pray this may I see the consolation of Israel Many, no doubt, anticipated the coming of the Messiah. 
They had different views of what the Messiah would look like. And we see the apostles spending the next three and a half years unpacking and unlearning what they thought the Messiah was coming to do. But nonetheless, this man was anticipating his arrival. And what we see here is a special revelation to this man by the Holy Spirit. That God had gone to this man, and I believe for a sign and for a confirmation to a young couple bringing a young child into Jerusalem for the obedience to the law, there's a confirmation that comes from this, young, this man to confirm this young couple and to tell us that this is the plan and the path that you're supposed to be on. How does Simeon even find them? How does he know that that's the Messiah? And put all the paintings that you've ever seen in your mind, Jesus did not have a halo around his head everywhere he went. That's not the way it worked. There, there was no, there would have been nothing, in the, and Isaiah says there's nothing in his appearance that would have necessarily drawn us to him. He was without form or comeliness. You wouldn't have seen Jesus come in and think, man, I want that guy on my basketball team. You wouldn't have seen him come in and like, man, that guy, man, that, that's a man among men right there. He was without form or comeliness. And so we don't see him coming in with this glow about him. And yet the Holy Spirit who sent Jesus in, into the mother, the womb of Mary also is guiding Simeon now and brings this all together. And he, here's the thing. We don't need the spectacular to know that God is moving. God is still working in the mundane and the usual. And here they are going about the usual. And a man in Jerusalem, God is using him. Now what did God reveal to Simeon? Look in verse number 26 if you would. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a message. Simeon, you're going to live. Now some legends say that he was well into 130, 138 years old. We don't have to have him that old to obey what Scripture says here, or to fill in what Scripture said. Nonetheless, however old the man was, the Scripture says that God had promised him that he would live until he saw the Lord's Christ. And he's anticipating his arrival, and I can picture him walking in to the, the Temple Mount that day and seeing this young couple with the child. And the Holy Spirit said, that's him. And he goes over to where it is. And I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us he even asks if he can pick up the baby. That'll get you in trouble if you don't ask. I, I, I found that out. You should ask. Um, so you, but he just walks over and he takes the baby into his arms. And he said, he said, oh, he blessed the Lord or he magnified the Lord. And then he begins to give this prayer or this song of Simeon that comes out. Mary and Joseph, this personal revelation. Now, I think it's interesting to note here that this personal revelation was given to Simeon during a time when God was silent. Now, that's an interesting note to me. God had not spoken to the nation of Israel for 400 years on a national level, but he was still working in people. That's an interesting thought to me. That no prophet was speaking from the rooftops but the Spirit of God was still speaking to people. And I, I, I'm encouraged by that. That God still works with the individual, even in the darkest of times. I want you to see verse the number three in our outline here, thy salvation. 
Some of you may be familiar with this Latin term of the song, the Nunc Dementis, means the song of Simeon. It comes from the first two Latin words in the Latin translation that would be interpreted or translated for us, now let depart. He said, it's time for me to go. He said, I can depart now. Let's read it together, verse number 30. He says, he says verse number 29, he said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. It's a short song. It's a short message. What is he saying? He's saying, I've seen the promise that you said that I would see, and now I can depart in peace. There's another disciple of Jesus later on that will say, I finished my course. I fought a good fight. I'm ready to be offered. And I just want to remind us again that our self is indestructible until our mission is complete. It is God who sustains us. It is God who keeps us and he brings us to the point of finishing the task that we were on and this man realized that he was there to testify at this hour and his work was done. Now he is not praying to depart at this moment, but he's saying, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. I have seen what you promised. I've seen your salvation. I can only imagine Mary hearing these words. How does Luke get this? How does Luke get this account? Now, now, obviously, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe the Holy Spirit of God moved upon men, and they rode as they were moved of God. But to believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we don't have to suspend belief in the normal transmission of information either. That I, I believe it very likely that Mary went home and jotted down these words that Simeon had said to her that day, and she wrote them maybe in a diary or a journal. And then I picture an aged Mary meeting with Luke, the physician one day, as Luke is compiling these accounts, and he said, yeah, I remember. And she pulls that journal out, no doubt, and shows him what Simeon had testified of. And the Spirit of God confirmed, and Luke puts it in this a gospel for us, and we see these words on the pages of Scripture as Mary, and we're told Mary pondered these things. She kept these things in her heart. And she meditated over this. And here the words come. He says, here's what he says to us. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now the image here, he's holding a child in his hand. And he's looking at this child and he blesses God. And he says, God, I can depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. He wasn't looking at a church when he said, I saw your salvation. He was looking at a child. When he said, I saw your salvation. He wasn't looking at a system of religion when he said, I saw your salvation. But he was looking at a man, a person who would live and die. It, the salvation of God is not in an institution or in men, but it is in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He said, I have seen your salvation. And prophecy comes to full here. As in Isaiah 52.10, we find these words, The ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And Simeon said, He is a light to lighten the Gentiles and a glory to Israel. Now this is, this is big stuff. 
that God is going to lighten the Gentiles is big news and it's going to cause trouble for about 40 more years until you get to Acts 15 and even after that many believers are going to struggle with it and we've even talked about that struggle when we've gone through our series in Colossians that somehow or another God can let these Gentiles in. That's you and me, by the way, all right? We're the ones he let in. And this is being prophesied at his birth there on this day of his dedication. And finally, we see a sword of sorrows. Now, in, in our text here, the, the song of Simeon stops. And in verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They're amazed by it. Now, I, I, I kind of picture that there is an exchange of stories. Joseph and Mary share their stories with one another about the angels coming to see them. And, and Mary talks to Elizabeth and hears the story about Zechariah. And then now the angels uh, come to the shepherds. And the shepherds come in and talk to Mary and Joseph. And this exchanging of stories of all that has gone on. And no doubt Mary and Joseph are saying, are you serious? This is the salvation. Well, let me tell you what we know. And there's an exchanging of the stories. And then it's almost as if Simeon says, Mary, I've got a message for you too. And it's a side message. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. It's not addressed to both of them. Now, history would tell us that Joseph died well before the crucifixion. And yet we find Mary living through the crucifixion, standing at the foot of the cross. And we see all of this taking place. And he has this private message for her. Listen to what he says to her. And Simeon blessed him and said Mary to his Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I imagine as she penned those words, she had no concept of what they meant. As she put them in her journal, as she meditated on them on them days ahead, and he said, my son will be given for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. What were the pains and the sorrows of Mary that she would walk through? This sword that will pierce your soul. No doubt we could walk through the life of Mary and see many times of confusion and grief and sorrow. You could see her as she searched for Jesus, as he was about his father's business as a 12-year-old boy. We could find her when she thought he was going crazy and trying to call him back from his public ministry. The pain that that must have caused when he looked and said, who is my mother, who is my brother and sister? And no doubt the day that she stood at the foot of the cross and watched him walking up that hill and being crucified. The sorrow that must have hung over this woman's soul and no doubt these words must have been in her mind as she went through these sorrows. But these are not just prophecies given here, but literally the fall or the stumbling and rising again is Isaiah 8.14 that he would be a stone of offense. That he would be the cornerstone that the builders reject. That he would cause many to stumble. If you want to look through your Bible and ask the question, who is the most offensive person in all of Scripture? 
It's Jesus. Jesus is the most offensive person in all of Scripture. He offends more people. He stirs more people up than anybody else. I mean, take all the prophets and put them together, and Jesus is still offending more people. He's constantly offending people, and yet, when you, when you, when you think, who is the most meek and the most mild and the most gentle person of all Scripture? It's Jesus. Who's the one that came to bring peace? It's Jesus. And yet, what did he bring? A sword. And, and our minds must wrap our... They, they, just, they twist when we think about that. And I think what we try to do is we try to paint Jesus as this cute, cuddly Christmas story on one side, and we ignore the sword on the other side. Or we preach all sword and we fail to see that he came to bring peace. And both of these things are a reality, and both of these things have implication. Mary, his sword is going to pierce through your soul. It's a sword of sorrow. The thoughts of Mary's heart, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This is the prophecy that continues. See, I think the thing we must see is that peace will come, peace will come, but through a sort of division first. The person of Christ separates. The person of Christ divides. Why is Jesus so divisive still. We, we were riding this, this Christmas Eve and Savannah was uh, in the car. We were talking and she kept noticing all the manger scenes in people's yards. And, and we drove and looked at Christmas lights. And we have a Christmas Eve tradition where we go and we buy junk food at a gas station. And then we drive and look at Christmas lights. And the kids can get whatever they want. And we just buy it all, and we get in the car, and we go look at Christmas lights for an hour or until we're bored with the lights we see. And we drove around, and, and uh, we, we looked at lights and, and just ooh and awe. And uh, we were doing that, and Savannah was counting manger scenes. And I don't remember which one of the kids said it. She said, but isn't it amazing that Mary and Joseph, this young carpenter and his wife, had no concept that be, people would be putting up statues 2,000 years later to this event in their front yard. It's mind-boggling when you consider it. Mind-boggling. And yet, we in this culture today, to put up a manger scene is divisive. Can you think of a more peaceful, serene scene than a manger scene? And yet, somehow or another, men divide over. And there's anger, and there's frustration, and there's division. Why does Jesus still bring division? You see, the problem with Jesus, when you investigate him, is not what you find out about him, but what he reveals about you. That's where the division of Jesus comes in. You see, when Jesus is preached, Jesus is unaltered by man's culture. Use all the force you have, Pilate, Sanhedrin, beat him with a cat of nine tails, nail him to a cross, spit upon him, mock him, torture him, and he's unchanged. 
nations, pass your laws, make him illegal, burn his book, mock his name, and he remains unchanged. No law can change who he is. And, and I, I, I even laugh at times where theologians uh, will take their liberal bent and do their best to paint Jesus in less than he is. And every time you do that, the Jesus that you paint is laughable. Because he is everything he said he is, not what you imagine him to be. And all of our laws and all of our railing and all of man's mocking cannot change him. And it drives man crazy. Because here's the thing. You know what I would like? If somebody punches you, what do you want to do? Punch them back. Right? Give them a piece of your mind and yet Jesus takes it all on him. And he opened not his mouth. And what is he showing? He's showing your inability, man's inability to alter what he came to do. He's a force to be reckoned with that no force can stop. And he marches forward through time. Not only is Jesus the unalterable by man's culture, his message is unalterable. Jesus is inclusive in his offer of salvation. And this fries people's bacon too. They can't stand it. Jews in that first century could not believe that Jesus was offering salvation. And they would not have said Gentiles. They would have said Gentiles. Those dogs are going to come into our place of gathering and they're going to pray to our God without obeying our laws. They couldn't comprehend it. And he said he's going to be a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. And Jesus, in his own words, he says, look, here's the thing. If you fall on this stone, you'll be broken. But if this stone falls on you, it'll grind you to powder. See, everybody that comes to Jesus has to be broken. Because we need to acknowledge that it's not about our culture that defines our salvation. It's not about our exclusivity that gives us salvation. But Jesus opened the door to Jew and Gentile and to nations all around. And Jesus lays aside the call of bigotry and nationalism. Understanding that the gospel goes to every nation, under every flag, under every political realm that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And the gospel is still preached to all those nations. And here's the thing you understand and I understand is that those people who believe Jesus are my brothers in Christ and are a part of the kingdom of God. This is the message. Jesus is not only inclusive in his offer of salvation, Jesus is exclusive in his claim as Savior. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way. All faiths this morning are not equal. Now that's not, that's not popular today. And I get that. But it would be the most unloving thing I could say to anyone is to make them think that somehow or another their sincerity, sincerity will save them. Your sincerity in what you believe will not save you. 
It is the sureness of his finished work and that alone, the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone that offers salvation to any of us. And that's where we find our hope. He was exclusive in his claim as Savior. And this is another one, and I think this continues to bother us. Jesus is unassisted in the work of salvation. He doesn't need your help. It's not based upon your efforts. It's not based upon your religious works. It's not based upon how good you've been or how bad you've been. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. The light shines out of darkness. And somehow or another, a dead sinner like you and I call upon the name of the Lord and we are saved. And it was none of us. It is all of Him. And we stand redeemed in His finished work. He doesn't need my assistance to save me. I am so glad that I didn't have anything to do with my salvation. Because if I had something to do with it, then I'd have to do something to keep it. And I would fail him time and time and time again. His faithfulness to us that calls us to him is unassisted by man's efforts. And by the way, man puts all kinds of fun things on this to make it look more spiritual. But let me make something clear. No church, no baptistry pool, no stained glass window, no rite, no ritual, no pastor, no priest need to come between you and the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, and it is the name Jesus Christ. And that message is still divisive. It still divides. Then finally, I come to where we live. Jesus is rigid in his call to discipleship. We have to have expectations in a church setting. And so we have expectations around here that if somebody's a member of the church, but they haven't attended in three months, that we would then call them and say, hey, we know you haven't been here. Um, are you intending to keep your membership? We expect you to attend once every three months. Wow. Now, obviously, there are people who are shut in, people who are sick, people who are in the military. Mitch, good to have you home, by the way. And uh, there are people who travel that are still a part of our church because of other extenuating circumstances. But it seems interesting to me that somebody who's a member of our church that is a healthy person who could attend, that we hold them to the high standard of attending once every three months. And I look at that and I read it and I'm like... Hmm. our standards are a lot lower than Jesus' standards. He said, except you forsake all and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Except you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. Now we could go into expounding all of that, and you've heard it expounded on more than one occasion, but the point being is there is a high call for discipleship. And I think often we love the concept of Jesus calling us to forgive our sins. But there becomes a division when he calls us to discipleship. And make something very clear. Christians don't become disciples. Disciples were called Christians. If this morning we are children of God, we are disciples. And there is still a high call for discipleship.
This call brings division. You see, only when we fall can there ever be a rise. Only when there is a fall can there be a rising again. And this is what Jesus is calling the nation of Israel is that I want you to stumble at my message so that I can lift you up. I want you to fall and stumble at this so that you can be resurrected. And so we come to the sorrow of Mary. We see Mary looking at Jesus as a baby in the manger, seeing him hanging on the cross and suffering that pain. But can I remind you she also saw the resurrected Lord? She saw her son resurrected and walking around and preaching for 40 days. Can you imagine what that must have been like for her to see him again walking around? And here's the amazing thing. We find her believing in the exclusive message of the son that she bore as being the only savior, the only hope, the one who was pointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. We find her proclaiming him in Acts chapter 1, 14 and chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as they're scattering throughout Jerusalem preaching the salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone. She's a part of that evangelistic campaign. You could read Acts chapter 1. She's there in the upper room. She's filled with the Holy Spirit that was promised would come. She believed what her son, who her son was and what he came to do. Could you imagine being you know, an unbeliever, and you walk up to an unassuming lady in her middle ages, the late middle ages, and you're like, hey, what's all this news that the, these guys are talking about? And she goes, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. And then she tells you the story of Jesus and how he was the Messiah that came, and he said, well, how did you know him? He said, oh, I was his mother. <laughs> I don't know who she witnessed to that day. But man, that would be a cool opportunity to be led to Jesus by Mary. But you know what she was doing? She was joining in to the work of the church. And by the way, that work continues today. We have the message of Jesus Christ and him alone. Pain will come, but through pain we preach peace to those who will receive peace through the exclusive message of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ and him alone. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts today. Lord, thank you for the beautiful Christmas season we've enjoyed. Lord, thank you for the next week we have in this year. May we use it to honor you. And Father, may we take the sorrows of the years and the pains that you sin. And we understand that we still have a message of peace in the midst of the sorrow that comes. And that even though division comes through the name of Jesus, it is only through Jesus that we'll ever find peace. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Let's stand to our feet.